All right, so we just finished a series on the book of Philippians, and um, we're jumping into a new series today, and this series today is called Things I Wish Jesus Had Never Said, okay? Things I Wish Jesus Had Never Said, right? How many of you guys have read through the Bible before, and you're like, oh man, I wish Jesus had not said that. Does that make sense? How many of you guys have ever been at a rehearsal dinner, and you've heard one of the groomsmen get up, and you're like, oh, I wish he hadn't said that, you know? How many of you thought that milk just came out of a bottle and somebody told you it came out of a cow and you're like, oh, I wish somebody had not told me that. Anyway, I may be the only person. That was shocking for me. That was totally shocking. Did not know that there was a body fluid. Anyway, so we are, again, so Jesus said a lot of these things that, are, that were intentionally shocking, honestly, and part of the reason they were shocking uh, is because he was always calling people deeper, right? And then whenever you call people um, deeper into relationship or deeper into truth or deeper into life, then things have all of a sudden um, become less comfortable, right? God's calling us out of our comfort zones. He did that over and over and over again. He not only did it with the Pharisees, he did it with the Jews. He not only did it with the Jews and the Pharisees, but he did it with his own uh, disciples as well, and I think he does it with us also. So let me take a moment here and let's pray, and then we're going to jump into uh, one of the things that uh, I kind of wish Jesus had never said. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this uh, morning. I thank you for each of the people that are in this room. I thank you, Father, that, again, um, regardless of what their motivations are for being here today, I know that you have your reasons. And so, Father, I ask um, that you would not let anyone leave this room this morning without having had an encounter with you, um, the living God, the author of reality. Uh, And, Father, I pray that... um, as they have that encounter with you, that they would walk away, and that not only their um, head would be changed, but their heart would be changed. And Father, I pray that as their heads and hearts are changed, that uh, then, then they might live life differently, that, uh, that they might live life in such a way so that their relationship with you flourishes, um, so that their relationship um, even with themselves flourishes, their relationship with um, their friends or their family flourishes, and even uh, as they walk more closely with you, that their relationship to this community of Rome, Georgia, or Barrie uh, would flourish um, as well. Father, I pray all these things now in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. All right. So, I don't know who um, is a better picture other than Jesus. Um, I don't know who's a better picture of someone who stood for justice, but at the same time offered forgiveness, right? Who who might be the best person to stand for that picture of uh, fighting for justice, but at the same time loving and offering, offering forgiveness? I'm going to say that MLK, Martin Luther King Jr., was one of the people that I would say sort of fits the bill there. He wasn't perfect by any means, but I think he, he held those two things in balance very well. Some of you may not know this, but um, Martin Luther King was arrested uh, 30 times, over 30 times, in fact. Um, frequently, he was arrested on trumped-up charges. Uh, one time he was a, uh, in, uh, arrested for uh, a traffic violation, and obviously he was arrested any number of different times um, for sitting in restaurants at counters where only white people were allowed. And so he was arrested over 30 times. On January 30th in 1958, uh, Martin Luther King's home in Montgomery, Alabama, he was out of town, but his wife and brand new daughter were at home. His home was bombed, right? It was bombed by people who were sick and tired of him seeking equality for African-Americans and for white people. Fortunately, neither his wife nor his daughter were injured. 
And what was interesting is that after their home was bombed and the fire trucks came and put out the fire, a large crowd of African Americans um, basically were there to support him, but they were furious. They were angry. They wanted to fight. And what's interesting is that what Martin Luther King did was he said, everybody calm down, right? What we need right now isn't to fight. Rather, what we need right now is to offer forgiveness and to offer love. And he led a time of prayer for those people in the front yard of his burning home. September 30th, 1958, at a book signing in a department store in New York City, a woman named Isola Ware Curry, uh, feigning to come up and get his autograph, reached over the table and stabbed him. And uh, the blade literally missed his heart by millimeters. He almost died. In fact, the doctors, when he went to the hospital, said if you had removed, it was a letter opener, the doctor said if you had removed that letter opener, you surely would have bled to death. You would have died. What's interesting is that after that happened, he prayed with this woman, and he offered forgiveness for her, and he asked that, asked that charges not be pressed. On October 9th, 1959, he sentenced to four-month hard labor for a traffic violation, right? In other words, they're out to get him. September 28th, 1959, during a sermon in Birmingham, he was preaching, and uh, it was a crowd, not unlike this. I think there were 350 people. Most of the people in the crowd were African Americans who were dressed up like, you know, they were going to church on Sunday because it was a sermon he was preaching. And there was one man who sat on the front row who had um, khaki pants and a white t-shirt on, and uh, he was a member of the Nazi party in America. At one point during King's sermon, he ran up on stage. This guy was six foot two and over 200 pounds. King was five foot seven. And he began to beat King in the face and on the back of the head until finally people from the crowd came up and pulled him off. And a King was bleeding from his face. He was bruised all over. His eye and his lip were already swelling up. And again, the people there wanted to take vengeance on this man who had hurt him. And King, even though he was beaten and bloodied at that moment, he said, we need to offer him forgiveness. What this man needs is not vengeance. What he needs is prayer. And what he needs is forgiveness, right? It's amazing sort of sort of balance between a desire for justice, fighting for justice, but also being loving and being forgiving at the same time. Of course, we know that on April 4th, 1968, that Martin Luther King was shot and killed as he stood on the balcony of the Lorraine Hotel in Memphis, Tennessee. It's crazy. I mean, how in the world, how in the world could someone juggle those two things and balance those two things? A desire for justice, but also a desire for forgiveness and for love. I mean, they almost seem like it's impossible to carry those two things in tension. Listen to some of the quotes from Martin Luther King. One of the quotes that he said, this is from a book called Loving Your Enemies. He says this, forgiveness does not mean ignoring what has been done or putting a false label on an evil act. Did you hear that? It doesn't mean that you pretend like it didn't happen or you don't pretend like it wasn't evil. It means rather that the evil act no longer remains as a barrier to the relationship. Forgiveness is a catalyst creating the atmosphere necessary for a fresh start and a new beginning. It's the lifting of a burden or the canceling of a debt. Forgiveness means reconciliation, a coming together again. See the balance there between justice and forgiveness. Listen to this next quote. He also said this, power without love is reckless and abusive. Power without love is reckless and abusive, right? That's vengeance. That's that desire for justice. He goes on to say, in love without power is sentimental and anemic. You're just an enabler. But he says, power at its best is love implementing the demands of justice. And justice at its best is power correcting everything that stands against love. Again, you see this? 
sort of this balance of a desire for justice and yet a desire and a willingness to forgive and to love. Last quote by Martin Luther King. I've decided to stick to love. Hate is too great a burden to bear. I've decided to stick to love. Hate is too great a burden to bear. Some of you in this room know exactly what that means, right? Some of you in this room know exactly what it means to choose love, to choose forgiveness, because some of you have experienced the cancer of hate, right? The cancer of a desire for vengeance. You've experienced that it just destroys you. So how in the world, how in the world could MLK, Martin Luther King, balance these two poles? How could he keep those two things in tension? How could he desire, fight for, and pursue justice, and at the same time offer forgiveness? The way he could do it was that he was a follower of Jesus, right? He was a follower of Jesus. That's, that's what gave him the ability. That's what gave him the, the power to fight and at the same time to forgive. Now, we're going to read a section from Luke chapter 6 today, verses 27 and th- through 29. And uh, it's in Luke, and it's called the, uh, basically they call it the Sermon on the Plain. And so we've heard of the Sermon on the Mount before. This is very similar in content, but it was a different time in Jesus' ministry. And what's interesting is that Jesus had uh, been doing all the things that you think about Jesus doing. He'd been healing people. He'd been teaching. He'd been doing all sorts of things, and the crowds were following him. I mean, it was getting, starting to get kind of crowded around Jesus. So one night he walked up on this mountain. He spent some time in prayer. He called his disciples to him, and he began to teach them. And as he taught them, all these people gathered around him, and they were listening to every word that he had to say. Listen again to the words of Luke chapter 6, verses 27 through 29. Jesus says this, But to you who are listening, I say. Let me call time out here for a second and say this. The reason he says this, because to those who are are listening, it's, it's almost like he's saying, if you're still listening after all that, he had just gotten done teaching on the Beatitudes, which probably sounded crazy to some people. He had just gotten uh, done teaching on these things like, you know, woe to you when everybody speaks well of you. Woe to you when this, when that, and the other. And Jesus says, but to those of you who are still listening, or in, in other words, those of you who haven't checked out yet, those of you who haven't gotten up and walked away because you were offended, I got a little bit more for you, is what he's saying. And he says this, but to you who are listening, I say, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who mistreat you. If someone slaps you on one cheek, turn to them the other also. It's crazy, right? That just sounds nuts. Sounds like it's one of those things that I wish Jesus just hadn't said, right? So let me call time out here for a second. Let's say, what do we see in this passage? What are we going to find here? One of the first things that we find in this passage is that the Jewish people to whom Jesus is speaking there on this plane, the Jewish people, they had real enemies, And Jesus is telling these people that have real enemies to really forgive them and to offer them love and to offer reconciliation. Does that make sense, right? I don't know how many of you in this room have enemies today, but Jesus is saying, I want you to forgive and love those real enemies, those people who have really hurt you. He says this, but to those who are listening, I say, love your enemies. Their real enemies had been the Assyrians who overran Israel, you know, and led them into slavery. Their enemies had been the Babylonians who did the same thing and put fish hooks in their mouths and dragged them away and carried them to all the different parts of the Babylonian kingdom. Their enemies had been the Greeks who had, who had defeated them. And now it was the Romans who were in power over them and were charging taxes upon them, who had persecuted them, right, because of their Christianity, because of their Judaism. And, and again, currently the Romans are an occupying force ruling over the people of Israel. They knew what it meant to have enemies. And Jesus was asking 
them, he was asking the people listening to him to forgive their real enemies. Now, many of you are familiar with apartheid in South Africa, and you know some of the players that were involved in in apartheid. It was basically, uh, South Africa was this very divided country between whites and African uh, Africans. And, uh, and essentially, the whites had abused the Africans for years, and it got so tumultuous at one point, there was so much fighting, and uh, there was so much um, bloodshed, and there, were, there was just so much chaos where whites were abusing Africans, and the, Afri- the, the native Africans were abusing the whites. It, was, it just had become uh, sort of the scene of chaos and bloodshed. And into that, of course, Nelson Mandela stepped, and then Bishop Desmond Tutu stepped. Uh, there was a point at which when Nelson Mandela became the president, Bishop Desmond Tutu was appointed to be the leader of South Africa's Truth and Reconciliation Commission. So the, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. And he was charged with figuring out how in the world to bring the white Africans and the African, the, the native black Americans, together. And so what he did is he basically said, what we're going to do is we're going to have formats where people can come up and they can confess everything that they did, the, everything that they did, all the horrible uh, suffering, the torture, the killing, everything they did is going to become public. It's going to be an opportunity for, to forgive. Now, in his book, No Future Without Forgiveness, Tutu writes about any number of these different stories in graphic detail. And they were horrible, but at the same time, powerful. Because what was happening there is that people were actually forgiving those who had wounded them. One of the stories that came out in this book was a story of a, of a woman and her daughter. Their last name was um, Kalata. And so these were Africans. They were, they were black South Africans. And I'm going to read from this section where it says this. Two people who came before the commission were Mrs. Kalata and her daughter. Mrs. Kalata's husband had been an advocate for black South Africans in rural communities. He was um, a black African. Because of his work, he had been arrested, detained, and tortured by the police numerous times. So this was normal for him, for him to be arrested, detained, tortured any number of different times. But one day he disappeared for good. He was gone. He never came home. On the front page of the newspaper several days later, Mrs. Collada saw a photograph of her husband's car on fire. She cried so loudly when recounting this during the commission uh, that when they were describing the autopsy report about his torture, uh, that the commission this huge room of people had to be adjourned because they couldn't go on because she was weeping so painfully and so loudly. When they reconvened, Mrs. Collada's daughter came up and testified instead. And she uh, was a young lady. She pleaded with the commission to discover who had killed her father, but she was not crying out because she wanted vengeance or justice. Instead, she said to the commission, we, my mom and I, actually want to forgive, but we don't know who to forgive. Does that make sense? Like, we don't want vengeance, We want to offer forgiveness, right? It says this. It says, eventually members of the police force confessed to the crime. And rather than to continue this endless cycle of hatred, Mrs. Collada and her daughter forgave the men who tortured and killed their husband and father because that's what Christ's people do. Does forgiveness mean that we don't care about justice? Does forgiveness mean there's no consequence for evil? No. What it means is that we leave justice and vengeance in God's hands He alone can judge rightly. Our job as agents of his kingdom on earth is to break the cycles of hate, to move from a people of exclusion to a people of embrace, forgiving others, our enemies, just as God in Christ has forgiven us, right? Some of you in the room this morning have real enemies too, right? Some of you in the room this morning have stories of people 
who were supposed to love you and who were supposed to protect you, and they hurt you deeply, right? Maybe more than you can talk about publicly. Maybe, maybe people that were supposed to love you and care for you rejected you. Maybe they left you. Maybe people that were supposed to love and care for you demeaned you. And what Jesus is asking you to do is something that may sound impossible this morning. He's asking you to forgive those people. He's asking you to love those people. He's even asking you um, to stay put and, uh, and, to, and to stay in place that reconciliation might even occur. Some of you in this room have real enemies, just like people in South Africa had real enemies, just like Martin Luther King had real enemies, and Jesus is asking you to forgive your real enemies. It just sounds like it's one of those things I wish Jesus hadn't said, right? Next thing we see in this passage is uh, this phrase about turning the other cheek, right? I don't know how many of you read this before, but let me just go ahead and say this. Turning the other cheek doesn't mean probably what you think it means. Unfortunately, it's actually harder than what you think it means because if it's just letting somebody hit you twice, well, you can take that. Uh, But I think what Jesus is really saying here is more difficult. And here's again where it says, it says, if someone slaps you on the one cheek, turn to them the other also. Let's start off by saying what this doesn't mean. What does this not mean? This doesn't necessarily mean pacifism, right? Sometimes I wish it did mean pacifism, but it doesn't. Jesus, when he sent the disciples out to go preach the gospel, said, by the way, take a sword with you. In Romans chapter 13, Paul says, hey, look, he says the, uh, the government has been given the power of the sword. So this also doesn't, not only does it not mean pacifism, it also doesn't mean allowing yourself to get walked all over. In the Old Testament, over and over and over again, we see the prophets, we see God speaking through them, demanding and fighting for justice and fighting against injustice. So it doesn't mean allowing yourself to get walked over. In the New Testament, we see that Jesus didn't allow himself to get walked over. In fact, if, if you read through the Gospels, what you see is Jesus is constantly fighting for justice, right? He's constantly fighting against injustice. He's constantly going toe-to-toe with the Pharisees. He fought for justice. He fought for the oppressed. Jesus was not a coward. He was not a pushover, right? So, so whatever turning the other cheek means, it doesn't mean any of that. So the question is, what does it mean? First of all, think about a slap. By the way, I almost put that scene from uh, Night at the Museum where Ben Stiller and the Little Monkey get in the slap fight, but it just didn't fit. It, it would have been funny, though. Anyway, so, but think about slapping. When you slap somebody, you're not actually trying to wound them, right? It's an insult, right? And so that's really what this is talking about here. It's, it's this idea of offering an insult to someone. It's basically saying if someone insults you physically or if someone insults you verbally, then what it means ultimately is turning the other cheek means being willing to forgive and being willing to stay there and wait, not to flee, not to fight, but to offer reconciliation, to offer forgiveness. Does that make sense? Again, that's, that's actually harder to do that, I think, or it would be for me. I could get punched twice and walk away, but this is much more than that. Turning the other cheek means willing, being willing to stay, to offer reconciliation, and it means doing everything in your power to stop the cycle of injustice. That's part of what Jesus is doing too. He's saying when you stand, and when you other, turn, turn the other cheek, it says you're not running away. You're, you're staying put, right? You're staying put, and not only are you not running away, but you're not seeking vengeance either. Because the tendency for most of us, if somebody were to slap us on the face, uh, metaphorically or physically, the tendency would either be for, somebody to, for one of us to run away, or the tendency for me would be to punch him back in the face, or to shout an insult back. I've talked to Krista about this last night, and I was basically saying, this is hard for me 
because my natural tendency, if somebody is, I'm, I try to be nice to everybody and kind to everybody, but over the course of BP's life, when somebody, I feel like somebody's not being fair to me and playing by the same rules, I'm like, oh, you're going you're gonna to act that way. Well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be that much harsher to you. I'm going to go that much harder back at you, whether that's physically or whether that's verbally, whatever the case may be. And again, what's happening here is we're not running away. We're not seeking vengeance or fighting back. Instead, we're offering forgiveness. We're seeking restoration. Does that make sense? It's harder. That's actually harder than physically turning the other cheek. Some of you guys have heard of a woman named Corey Tenboom. Uh, she wrote a book called The Hiding Place. She and her sister Betsy uh, owned a home in Amsterdam when it was occupied uh, in, um, by the Germans during World War II. They were hiding Jews, and uh, when the Nazis found out about it, they not only took the Jews, but they arrested uh, Betsy and Corey, and they took them um, to a concentration camp. Now, um, obviously, she was freed, though um, her sister died in the concentration camp. And uh, after the war, war, war was over, she went back to Munich, and she was speaking to a crowd, and she was talking about forgiveness. I'm going to read a section from her book. She says this, It was in a church in Munich that I saw him, a balding, heavyset man in a gray overcoat, a brown felt hat clutched between his hands. People were filing out of the basement room where I had just spoken, moving along the rows of wooden chairs to the door at the rear. It was 1947, and I had come from Holland to defeated Germany with the message that God forgives. It was the truth they needed most to hear in that bitter, bombed-out land, and I gave them my favorite mental picture. Maybe because the sea is never far from a Hollander's mind, I like to think that that's where forgiven sins were thrown. When we confess our sins, I said, God cast them into the deepest ocean. They're gone forever, right? She's speaking to these Germans, these people who had been involved in this Holocaust. She goes on to say, the solemn faces stared back at me, not quite daring to believe. There were never questions after a talk in Germany in 1947. People stood up in silence, in silence collected their wraps, and in silence left the room. That's when I saw him working his way forward against the others. One moment I saw the overcoat and the brown hat, the next a blue uniform and a visored cap with its skull and crossbones. It came back with a rush. The huge room with its harsh overhead lights, the pathetic pile of dresses and shoes in the center of the floor, the shame of walking naked past this man. Betsy and I had been arrested for concealing Jews in our home during the Nazi occupation of Holland, and this man had been a guard at Ravensbrück concentration camp where we had been sent. Now he was in front of me. His hand was thrust out. A fine message, Fraulein. How good it is to know that, as you say, all our sins are at the bottom of the sea. And I, who had spoken so glibly of forgiveness, fumbled in my pocketbook rather than take that hand. He would not remember me, of course. How could he remember one prisoner among those thousands of women? But I remembered him and the leather crop swinging from his belt. I was face to face with one of my captors, and my blood seemed to freeze. You mentioned Ravensbrook in your talk, he was saying. I was a guard there. No, he obviously did not remember me. But since that time, he went on, I've become a Christian. I know that God has forgiven me for the cruel things I did there, but I would like to hear it from your lips as well. Fraulein, again, the hand came out. Will you forgive me? And as I stood there, I, whose sins had again and again to be forgiven and could not forgive, Betsy had died in that place. Could he erase her slow, terrible death simply for the asking? 
It could not have been many seconds that he stood there, hand held out, but to me it seemed hours as I wrestled with the most difficult thing I ever had to do. For I had to do it. I knew that. The message that God forgives has a prior condition that we forgive those who have injured us. If you do not forgive men their trespasses, Jesus says, neither will your Father in heaven forgive your trespasses. I knew it not only as a commandment of God, but as a daily experience. Since the end of the war, I had a home in Holland for victims of Nazi brutality. In other words, she had a home that she allowed these victims to come to to heal. Listen to this next couple sentences. Those who were able to forgive their former enemies were able also to return to the outside world and rebuild their lives, no matter what the physical scars. Those who nursed their bitterness remained invalids. It was as simple and as horrible as that. And I still stood there with the coldness clutching my heart. But forgiveness is not an emotion. I knew that too. Forgiveness is an act of the will, and the will can function regardless of the temperature of the heart. Help, I prayed silently. I can lift my hand. I can do that much. You supply the feeling. And so woodenly, mechanically, I thrust my hand into one, the one outstretched to me. And as I did, an incredible thing took place. The current started in my shoulder, raced down my arm, sprang into our joined hands, and then this healing warmth seemed to flood my whole being, bringing tears to my eyes. I forgive you, brother, I cried with all my heart. For a long moment, we grasped each other's hands, the former guard and the former prisoner. I'd never known God's love so intensely as I did then. What an amazing story. You know, again, we talked about the fact that these Jews had real enemies, right? And here's a woman who had a very real enemy that had hurt her um, in unimaginable ways and taken the life of her sister, right? And so when faced with this man or any other uh, person who had been in the Nazi regime, she could have just run away, right? She didn't have to have a home that took care of these people who had been wounded by the Nazis. She didn't have to go to Germany to speak and to offer forgiveness. She could have just gone to the United States or to Australia. She could have escaped. She could have run away, but she didn't. She could have at that moment when he reached out her, his hand, she could have slapped him in the face, right? She could have reached down into her purse and pulled out a gun and shot him because she could have been desiring vengeance so much so that she was waiting for an opportunity just like this. But instead, she made a decision. She chose to forgive and to offer reconciliation. She turned the other cheek. She, she stood there and offered reconciliation. Again, some of you in this room this morning have real enemies, right? A coach, maybe, a teacher, maybe a parent, maybe a boss, maybe a sibling, maybe a spouse, someone who hurt you when you were younger. And Jesus asks you to do something that just seems impossible, to turn the other cheek, to offer forgiveness, and to offer restoration, right? It just sounds impossible. It sounds like one of those things I wish Jesus had never said. Finally, what does it look like to love our enemies? Well, essentially what Jesus says is what it looks like to love our enemies, what's required in loving our enemies is that we love them with our actions, that we love them with our words, that we love them with our prayers. In other words, what Jesus is saying is this, this love that you offer to enemies is complete, it's whole, it's holistic, it's entire. It encompasses everything in your being to do it. You offer them everything, right? And the reason this is so important is because 
You can use your words to forgive somebody, but tear them down with your actions. You can use your actions to forgive someone and love someone, but you can tear them down with your words. And what Jesus is saying here is you, you need to offer this love, you need to offer this forgiveness with your whole being. When I was in college, I had a friend uh, who, I'll just not say his name, his name was Jeff. He's a pastor still, actually, but he grew up um, in Mississippi. And his grandmother had been a missionary in Korea back in, probably in the 50s. And uh, this was, of course, now 30 years ago when I was in college. And, uh, or however long ago, not quite 30 years ago, 25 years ago. Anyway, uh, but I was talking to Jeff one day in the library, and he was telling me about his grandmother and how she had been this missionary in Korea. And uh, he was really kind of smitten with her and was really proud of her, which I thought was great. It was really cool. And, um, and he went on to tell the story. He said, yeah, you know, she was there for 30-some-odd years, and uh, she worked in these various um, you know, parts of Korea, which were sort of dangerous and not particularly safe. And she said, um, one of my favorite stories that my grandmother told me uh, just before I came to college was that one day she was in this particular um, section, this was in South Korea, that was a little bit of a sketchy area, and uh, that a man um, essentially captured her and uh, took advantage of her in some various ways. And uh, so again, um, she experienced this suffering, right? Um, she had a real enemy who did something that was truly horrible to her. And, uh, and so she um, went to the authorities and told them, gave uh, a description of this man. Um, and uh, essentially, again, a desire for justice, but yet we'll see the rest of the story in a minute. And uh, several days later, um, the police um, came and they said, hey, we've, we found the man that did this. Uh, some of his um, family members who were ashamed and embarrassed uh, turned him in. And so when the police got there, they beat him so badly that he almost died. So he's in the hospital now. And so my friend Jeff's grandmother was faced with a decision. She uh, was faced with a decision of whether to simply say, I can't deal with this enemy. I can't deal with this person who's wounded me and therefore run away. Or, you know, she could sneak in this hospital room and accidentally clip the air hose, which is what I would do. But rather, what she did was she went to that hospital room, and over the course of the next several weeks, she cared for this man physically, right? She bathed his wounds, made sure that his medication was correct. Um, she uh, prayed with him. She prayed for him. Um, she spoke to him. She read to him. And at the end of being in the hospital for several weeks, this man was just astounded and asked, why in the world are you loving me so well? Why are you being kind to me? Why in the world could you forgive me? And she had a chance to share the gospel with this man. And the amazing end of the story is that she said that this man, at that moment, prayed to receive Christ and became a believer. Just a fantastic story um, of, of love and of forgiveness, but even at the same time, a desire for justice. The question for those of us in this room this morning is, what would it look like for us to forgive our enemies? What would it look like for us to stick around and to work for reconciliation with somebody that had hurt us, I'm telling you, it would take um, a miracle for me, I think, right? It just seems like it's impossible. It seems like it's one of those things that I just wish Jesus hadn't said. Let me wrap up this morning by saying this. If loving your enemy today sounds possible, like if there's somebody out there going, nodding their head and going, yeah, I can do that, then chances are one of two things is the case. Um, if you're going, yeah, I can do that, then chances are you've never had a real enemy before. Chances are you've never really been hurt before. And so if you're nodding your head and going, I can do that, then just keep on living a little while because it will happen at some point in time. The other people in this room that may be nodding their heads internally or externally are people who have understood the gospel very, very deeply, right? Not unlike Corey Tinboom, not unlike Martin Luther King, right? 
people that understand the gospel so deeply, they understand just how much they've been forgiven of, right? They understand that they were enemies of God, they were enemies of Christ, and because they have been offered forgiveness and grace and mercy, that somehow, miraculously, they're able to turn around and offer that same forgiveness to others. Now, if loving your enemies sounds impossible to you today, which is what it sounds like to me, like I'm not quite sure I could do this, it sounds like it's almost impossible, then uh, join the club, right? What Jesus is asking us to do is much harder than simply allowing someone to hit us twice on one cheek and then the other cheek, right? What Jesus is asking us to do is he's asking us to truly forgive these enemies. But the good news is, is that Jesus doesn't ever ask us anything to do that he hasn't done himself. One, one of the things you have to know about Christianity is that Jesus is our model, right? I mean, he did set the example of how to live life for us. He fought for justice. He offered forgiveness, right? He fought against injustice. He loved people who were his enemies. He kept those two things in tension. So he was our model, but more importantly than being our model, he was our substitute. Does that make sense? In other words, the essence of Christianity is that Jesus did what you won't do. Jesus did what you can't do, right? Jesus offered forgiveness to his enemies when on the cross, we read in Luke chapter 23, paints the picture by saying this, two other men, both criminals, were also led out with him to be executed. When they came to the place called the skull, they crucified him there. They, they nailed him to this cross along with these criminals, one on his right, the other on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, right? The Pharisees, the Pharisees that had trumped up charges and accused him falsely, the Romans who had gone along with it to keep the peace, the Jews who just several days earlier had been saying, Hosanna, 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 the people that should have loved him, right? The, should have people, the people that should have protected him, the people that should have taken care of him, those very Jews turned their backs on him. Jesus says, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. He offers forgiveness, and at the same moment of loving them and offering forgiveness to them, he satisfies the justice of his Father. Let's take a moment and let's pray. Father, I thank you um, for the hard sayings of Jesus. And I thank you that, like an oncologist uh, or a surgeon, uh, that you um, are willing um, to hurt us a little bit or a lot of bit at times in order to dig down into our souls and our hearts and our minds uh, to pull out um, the sin and the rebellion and the brokenness. Father, I, this, this, this task, Father, that you've given to us um, to offer forgiveness and at the same time to fight against injustice just frankly feels impossible. It just doesn't feel, like, doesn't feel like I could do it. And so, Father, I ask that I would keep my eyes on your son. And, Father, I just ask that you would not only give me, but I pray that you would give the people in this room this morning the power of your Holy Spirit um, to do this impossible task, not only to offer forgiveness, but also the impossible task of trusting in Jesus alone uh, as our substitute. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.